This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. We're back, Americana Podcast listeners, and today we have a real treat for you in terms of listening experiences. Like all genres, Americana music extends beyond recordings and streaming services. It's fair to argue that a lot of the magic of a listening experience comes from live performances by the artists we love. Now, it's been a while since many of us have probably seen a live performance due to our current situation, and it does feel that the balance of magic and music is a bit off. The relationships created by artists with their audience in the span of maybe an hour are on another level of human connection. It's because these moments caught between the stage and the pit are both communal as well as personal. We overlook the fact that an artist's job is to create not only the music being performed, but they are also the curators of experience, and there's a lot that goes into that. No one may know that better than our guests today, Kenneth Pattengale and Joey Ryan, also known as the Milk Carton Kids. Both hailing from California, Pattengale and Ryan officially teamed up in 2011 after both briefly endeavoring in solo careers. Their catalog is stacked with records of delicate poetry backed by incredible musicianship by both parties. The finger-picking alone is incredible, and their lyrics are brought to life by tender but very upfront and clear vocal performances by both Pattengale and Ryan. The Milk Carton Kids' impressive musical repertoire is one thing, but off-record, pun intended, Their physical presence is powerfully magnetic. As you'll come to find in this interview, Pattengale and Ryan are incredibly educated in regards to music and modern musical history. And I'll be the first to say it, if they wrote the book about Americana music, I'd read it. In a live performance setting, the melancholic nature of their music is offset by rapid-fire comedic banter and colorful interaction. These traits have not gone unnoticed in the upper echelons of entertainment. Presently, the Milk Carton Kids have acted as hosts of the Americana Music Awards for the past two years. This episode was actually recorded prior to their second hosting this past year at Americana Fest. But they have also appeared in HBO's show Vinyl and were included in the Coen Brothers' Inside Lewin Davis inspiration record. Next to other names such as Gillian Welch, Oscar Isaac, and Mumford & Sons. So join us today as our host, Robert Earl Keane, speaks with Kenneth Pattengale and Joey Ryan of the Milk Carton Kids about their professional conjunction, their stage presence evolution, and just flat-out laughs. Recorded at Americana Fest 2019 at Indo Nashville, I'm your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast, the 51st State. Above the plains of Omaha, I think of all the suffering I saw. The soaking of the pavement sprawled upon a land without a law. Everything I loved, everything I found around for Frightened and 
Hello, all. My name is Robert O'Keen, and you're tuned into Americana Podcast, the 51st State. Today, we're at Indo Nashville for Americana Fest. We are speaking with Joey Ryan and Kenneth Pattengale, or better known as the band The Milk Carton Kids. Howdy and welcome. Hey, Robert. Howdy. Thank you. Uh, let's make sure the audience knows who you are. So, Joey, you want to just say something there? I'm Joey, this one with sort of the more pleasing voice. <laughs> <laughs> and Kenneth, you'll know by the end. He's the one that lacks a personality, and I'm the one that kind of uh, bumbles on. <laughs> so you guys were both born and raised in L.A. Yeah, yeah, on opposite sides of the city. Really, and we did never knew each other, and we still to this day I find it remarkable. We have I we haven't met, we haven't found anybody that we both knew in common. Not I mean, not anybody we knew com- in common, like in our childhood. Yeah, yeah. Right. Just totally isolated social and family circles completely like never we we haven't discovered any overlap. I mean it un- is a major metropolitan area of about 25 million people. So it yeah, seems like But we were I born with we were that 25 million is an overestimate especially in 1982 and we were born 2 months apart from each other. Really? You know, we could be brothers. We could be brothers. Well. No. Two months Cousins. apart, how would that happen? Right. Well, um, half-brothers. Half-brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Step-brothers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so let me ask you an L.A. question. You ever been to the La Brea Tar Pits? Of course. Really? Sure. Yeah. No kidding. Like as a school project field day thing or just... What the hell? I'm going to yeah. see what's going on. Well, for me it was with school, but, but the question reminds me of like we we were born in 82 so we're still young men i guess although it feels like we're getting not for long right <laughs> <laughs> but often i think that maybe by the time maybe like 15 years later it seems like once cell phones hit and email hit i feel like maybe if you grew up in los angeles your sense of local identity uh, somehow became really normalized and so, a, a, a elementary school visit to the La Brea Tar Pits to me sort of feels like a badge of honor or a staple of being a native Angelino. Ah, which and now I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, so we go like probably at least once or twice a year, just because you need stuff to do with kids that age. Right, absolutely. They, they have a little museum there, right? Yeah, and like a whole park adjacent oh. to it, and the kids learn. So you've been there recently? Uh huh. Yeah. So now between, like, say, maybe 87 when you went the first time and now, probably very little has changed relatively That's correct. on the time scale of the pits. Very little has changed in the last couple hundred million years at the La Brea Tar Pits, <laughs> I think. Uh, well, it's the thing I always remembered about the La Brea Tar Pits is they put those, um, like, a, a handle on a, like a piston, like a cylinder that you can drive up and down into the tar so that you can feel the resistance of the tar, how thick it is, and understand how the animals at the time would have got stuck in it. Because when you're a kid, you can't pull the, the piston out of the tar. Wow. It still seems like some of the saber-toothed tigers would have been able to wrang- wriggle their way out, but I guess... Yeah, that just seems like sort of like a corporate scare tactic. <laughs> you know... 
Is it, is it now like the Coca-Cola La Brea tar pits or yeah, something? Yeah, it's like getting the kids to fear tar and make sure yeah. and fall in line and you get super believe what it. they're told. Yeah. And then they bring you into the, the lounge afterwards where they make you feel all good and hand you a yeah. Coke. Yeah. <laughs> so cheer you up. Okay, let's talk about music and career. So you both had a... You had uh, separate careers uh, before you became the Melt Carton yeah, Kids. Kind and, of. Uh, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, just that career would be g- a generous label. Well, l- I always wonder about this, too. It, it might betray some kind of fascination with different eras, but. Um, yeah, we, w- we were trying to be solo. Solo artists, though, when mm-hmm. we met. But in, when you're doing that in 2004, it means you got your own MySpace page. It means that if you can talk somebody into giving you about two grand, you can call up disc makers who had just started, and they'll print you up CDs and put them in shrink wrap like you're legit. And oftentimes I think about if we were in the in 1976, and at that time, because in 2004, 2005, for all intents and purposes, were hobbyists, mm-hmm. you know, 12 people are coming to the show and it, God forbid you put the CD on and listen to it you find out it actually stinks it shouldn't have been made but you know what did that look like in 1976 and what did that look like in ni- I mean I know what it looked like after us and I was grateful to not grow up 10 years later because I would have had put all that shit on YouTube and people could <laughs> s- people could still hear it Instead, there's just a thousand CDs in my dad's garage yeah, and nobody true. can hear it. Like, that's crazy. The fact that MySpace went defunct is like the greatest gift to us as a band because all of our shitty early stuff just disappeared. Ah. But We're so like, like the last generation of bands whose who's like very first bedroom demos can be erased from the internet. Mm. Now everyone younger than us, like yeah, like you said, it's if you played at a bar, like somebody filmed that on their iPhone, and it's on the internet forever. But so that's what so I mean. That's where our, that's what our careers were pre- before meeting each other. We, I guess, r- immediately before we met each other, it seemed like Joey and I independently had f- finally found some traction with something. It was probably the the album I made in two thousand nine was was when it finally started to come together for me. And the same thing with his EP that he had just put out that year. And then we so happened to meet and actually were fond of one another's work that had just come out. But if we hadn't met, I would say maybe that was the the start of our careers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have progressed on in a meaningful way. But 2001 to 2009 for me was kind of... Um, was a uh, triple-A ball, or maybe single-A ball. <laughs> We're coming home tonight. What all have we done to run this country into such a sight? Stolen from our brothers like we couldn't find a fair enough fight. You wait on promise, you will say. What and where is the Hotel Cafe? That's a uh, little uh, club, music club, folk, mm-hmm. I guess. Folk Neither club, hotel club. nor cafe. Yeah. Uh-huh. A music venue. Right. <laughs> it's a music venue on Coenga Boulevard in Hollywood, right in the middle of 
Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And it still exists, but most oh, importantly, yeah. there's a chilling strong. There's a chapter of history uh, for them. I think probably 2002 to about 2010. Maybe mm-hmm. if you exclude us, 2002 to 2006, it was the center point of a songwriter scene in Los Angeles that um, that was significant, that had a significant impact. A lot of yeah, that was the spot. You know, that was the, that was the place to play. That's where, like, when I when I had when I finally got to play my first show at the Hotel Cafe, I made up a special poster just for that. You know, <laughs> Hotel Cafe debut. Yeah, did and you I change strings? <laughs> I, no, I didn't change strings for that. That uh, it didn't rise to that level of importance for me. Yeah, right. But it was still a pretty big deal. Did this have anything to do with you two getting together? It's where we eventually met because right. we were both doing that, doing right. sh- our, all of our shows there, and you know be, we were a part of that community. And um, yeah, one day the the owner of the place who booked everybody uh, named Marco from you know from my side of the story is he you know told me one day you got to come down on friday night or whatever it was because this new guy kenneth pattengale has a show and you should see it it's really good and so i came down and saw his show we met after that it's real organic community-based networking Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't it's not unlike this americana thing Mm -hmm. other than you know, Americana's now matured to a point where it's where it's thousands of members and has a national mm-hmm. brand and um, has radio charts and stuff. But like the and whole a Grammy category and a Grammy Let's category. Not but the whole it seems like the whole point in the beginning always is to bring close interests together to try to stir up the creative pot or to try to find a community or to try to capitalize on. Um, where an audience is found, and that seemed to be really strike a chord. If I remember correctly, I'll g- I'm sure I'll get it wrong, but if I remember correctly, the the hotel cafe in L.A. was it was these two guys, Max and Marco, that found a place on Coanga because any show that you would go to in L.A. where anybody was playing, you know, below a blistering volume, you couldn't hear. And so this was a place in the early 2000s where where kids would show up and bring their own wine and sit on the floor and listen to people play songs, which sounds very obnoxiously like 60s. Uh, But there was a a community need for it. There were people that were coming to listen. And sure enough, that was reflected in where those artists found their career. And a lot of them, specifically in the then and there, took advantage of what was the burgeoning TV sync career mm-hmm. the it was it was um it was gary jewels and and carrie brothers and joshua raid and all these people all of their songs ended up on gray's anatomy and mm. on lost and all you know all this it was a, it was the era of when those sinks were really these coveted yeah, they'd make your career yeah they'd make your career they'd put you on the itunes chart you'd get a big check it would mean that people would start to come out but that was a reflection of a real community need and a real uh, reflection of something that was happening organically on the ground there with a group of people. And so, you know, not unlike, um, not unlike, uh, say, like the Saddle Creek thing in Omaha, where you know they have a, they definitely have a chapter mm-hmm. in the history books, or or the Sub Pop thing in Seattle. Right. It's this, these little explosions of community that c- come about from from this sort of strange organic intersection of music and life.
Once you met and uh, got together, do you remember the first time you sat down together and played a song? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Definitely. What song? The first song that we played together was a song of mine called Permanent. And uh, I came over to Kenneth's house at his invitation with um, sort of this admonition of his. He said, Joe, you got to come over to my house and hear me play guitar on your songs. Not true. <laughs> it's not true. Remember how you said that to me? <laughs> He's been spinning this live for nine years. He thinks it's some cute PR angle. It's the way angle, I remember it's, it. It's demonstrably it's a, untrue. It's not demonstrably untrue, or you would have demonstrated it long ago. <laughs> Nobody will ever know if it's true or not, except for me, who knows that it is true. So were you playing the same instruments that you're playing today at the yeah. time? Yeah, we were. The I came over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I came over and... Um, and the Kenneth had some microphones set up, and I, I, we played through the song, and and he played guitar in my song and sang some harmonies. I guess he had listened. We when we met, then we had both gone and listened to each other's re- most recent releases and stuff. So we were kind of familiar with each other's songs at that point. And that, um, yeah, the when we sang together, there was that thing of where your voices sound like just kind of stop you in your tracks with the way they sound together. And it's like, oh, this sounds really amazing. Mm-hmm. This sounds great. Mm-hmm. And you, it's, you know, it's hard to get through the song because you're like so into yourself at the moment for how good you're so doing. So this was your light bulb moment about yeah. you guys can... Except, except with the caveat for me of I thought that we actually played like guitar specifically, but really terribly together and had a totally unsympathetic specifically like sense of tempo mm-hmm. uh <laughs> i just thought we were pushing and pulling against each other and it was super frustrating and i was like when i got to the end of that song i was like that was awful mm-hmm. and we, and i remember looking over at kenneth like what's his reaction going to be and he was just all lit up about it like that wasn't that amazing and i was like yeah i mean i'd love to do it again you know Give <laughs> me a call sometime. See, no, like I'd love to do another take right now and see if we can't f- agree on what the tempo should be of this song. But uh-huh. then he played it back, and that that was my for me my light bulb moment, which I think Kenneth probably had in real time was the disagree the disagreement or the disharmony in the way in our in our sense of time and that push and pull actually made the song feel really urgent mm. and exciting in a way that I couldn't perceive when I was in it because I was just trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. But hearing it back, it was super compelling. Mm-hmm. And so one of the, for me, the mo- one of the most fun parts of our collaboration 
besides the harmony singing, which comes super, which really comes really naturally, is playing with time together. And because there's only two of us, we can push and pull the time really sort of elastically and really far out. Um, and and that's been, yeah, discovering discovering that has been musically really rewarding. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. Fast forward ten years, we w- we went into the studio. Um, Two months ago, record our fifth album that we'll put out this EP fall. Album? We don't know if it's an EP or an album. I c- I've been affectionately referring to it as a short album. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's seven songs and twenty eight minutes. Which, like, so that if we figure they're like the technical definitions now are probably set by Spotify, and uh, it's, stra- it's, it's twenty eight like minutes. The line. So in nineteen seventy six, it would have been an album. Sure. It's seven. What is this obsession with 1976? There's no obsession. The whole point of this, I'm trying to say, is that fast forward ten years, we went in to record this. uh, What is now the the fifth thing that we've conjured together, and will officially um, short album. Short album, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But uh, uh, no joke. The the hardest part of the process and the main conflict, as it has been in every iteration of the last 10 years is Joey and I can't agree on what the hell's going on with the tempo of the song. <laughs> and it's not about like, are we going fast or slow? It's about we play it and one of us says, that sounds like shit. And the other one goes, no, that's great. We need to be doing that. And it's not any different than what he just described as the first day we met. We've made zero progress on that front. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've heard I've heard before. I mean, uh, in the world of, of two people being together and and having some kind of connection, like you know, like a man and wife having a soulmate, that the that the, that the the magic there is actually they challenge you all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. that must be some something that's going on here. I mean, there is that ch- not only tempo, but probably you know other decisions as well. Do you guys challenge each other on a? Regular basis. What gives you that impression? It's a real blessing and a real curse. Uh-huh. Let me tell you. <laughs> Honey, won't you listen? Listen to my song. Honey, won't you please be strong? You may not see the ending, but the story's not so long. Honey, won't you? Honey, please shake your honey, hun. What you don't know never will hurt you. Don't you know? Know that I used you. Pray like all the others on what you never will. Bill. Honey, won't you? Honey, please hold that honey still. Honey, won't you? Honey, please hold that honey still. Honey, won't you? Honey, please hold that honey still. Um, once you decided to play together, <laughs> you came out with a record called Retrospect. It was under your names before coming out with your first record as the Milk Carton Kids. This retrospect is, let me say this again. It, retrospect is a Milk Carton Kids record, correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The yeah. reason with we an asterisk. Yeah. Oh, this, okay. Wait a minute. Like, I'm sorry. I got. I got. Yeah. I got this. The retros. The retrospect album, which is an album, not a short album. 
Correct. So, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a long rather album. long album. It's, yeah. a it's a long al- live album. It's a live and album. And it's a live okay. album. Yeah. Okay, so retrospect, uh, the live album is not under the Milk Carton Kids moniker. It is, uh, it's Correct. Joey and Kenneth. Kenneth yeah. and Joey on a coin. Flip. Kenneth and Joey. <laughs> we literally yeah. flipped a coin when we were making the album art. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I went first, and it's been that way ever since. And then there's this song, Milk Carton Kid, on that. That, uh, that's on Prologue. Right. But I mean, okay, uh, so oh, no. Milk Carton Kid is on Prologue and um it 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 had something to do with how how did this how did this name come yeah. about? Help me with that. Well, we needed a name. Right. <laughs> the whole thing can be <laughs> defined. There's an in, there's a there's a very clear era of us buying so completely into our own bullshit mm-hmm. that it um defined everything we've never talked about this what's this gonna be no no that it defined everything and it, and it's fine it's okay i'm okay with it because i f- that that i think the identity of a artist specifically a musician uh, so often is this is you decide what you are and then you probably spend your life either frustrated that you made the wrong decision or living up to it or whatever it is but so the beginning it's uh, to anybody looking closely it, it's obnoxiously cute it's that Joey and I met, and and we immediately went on the road, arranged a bunch of our previous songs to have a set. We picked the best songs we had, combined a set. There were politics involved, so it was like, you b- both take the best songs, but probably we need each of our songs represented. Um, we also did probably 70 dates on the road that year, and the whole while we're trying to put together this vision of what does a joint band look like. So... All of this happens in a tornado, and what comes out... I mean, we put Retrospect and Prologue out within, what was it, three or four months of each other? Because we recorded it all in the same era. And so what's the, what's the like, silly, cute way to delineate it? It's like, we'll put out a retrospective of our prior work that sort of demarcates when we start our band. And so... Who are the two idiots that put out retrospect after e- meeting each other <laughs> a year before? It's us, but it's sort of it's our band. But that's that was the culmination of our solo. That was the collision of our solo work happening. And, and the only reason we didn't put that under Milk Carton Kids moniker was because it was songs that had been mo- mostly previously released by us as solo artists. Mm-hmm. So we just felt like we wanted Milk Carton Kids to be all brand new originals yeah. that we wrote together. But um, and so that all happens in this weird, on-the-run um, sense of identity forming mm-hmm. for us. And, and and so the band name itself also is very much a result of just that thing. We need a band name. We kicked around to, to, to a, at a loss for, I don't know how long we kicked that around, but at some point on a really long car ride from Los Angeles to Eureka, California, somewhere in, I think, literally the 11th hour, we thought Milk Carton Kids would be a good idea. And I'm, we, I'm sure we had a cute explanation of how it tied into our song, Milk Carton Kid, and what that meant, whatever. Well, it definitely came from the, lyri- from the song. But then we liked the implications at, at that time of what it, said about us to name ourselves that mm-hmm. we named ourselves after a lyric in one of our own songs <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but then also to be honest i think one of the reasons it's our band name is just 
because we came up with that and the there wasn't a majority of people to whom we recited the name that said no don't name yourself that and so this is your focus group effort yeah okay. which i think was joey's wife probably our did we have a manager then booking agent booking agent it was a short group of people and nobody said nah mm-hmm. i mean i'm sure a few people my said wife nah. said nah oh well <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should listen we to do. her more often <laughs> we do we do now <laughs> so uh let's move on to prologue this <laughs> is the title prologue <laughs> Uh, a promise to things to come is that is that sort of yeah how that works yeah we liked we also thought it was pretty cute to be putting out an album called retrospect and then immediately after ah. put an album called prologue because it was it was a retrospective of our solo careers and then a prologue of what was to come for us together all very self-referential i know but i love that you cleared that all up <laughs> because we were all wanting to know yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's that's basically what it was. And then after that, we decided that um, out the album titles should not be self-referential to the band. They should be referential to w- actually the well, message and themes of the songs on the album. So I don't know exactly how this works for you, but I would be interested to hear the the balance of it. The w- One of the... Are you going to try and flip this around on him and start asking him questions? Well... I feel like it's a you. We it's are open en- for We are engaged a, oh, in a conversation. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. I didn't um, know it was a conversation. <laughs> to me, again, one I of the it was an interview. Uh, another we check the advance sheet to see which one it is. Funny. I don't feel the pain I once did. One day it just vanished like a milk carton kid. Are your rooftops set free in a hurricane wind? I don't feel that pain I once did. Home was just a broken heart, a driveway to park a car, a memory of a dream long since in discard. So you won't be surprised at the joy in my heart This don't feel like home anymore Yeah, well, so with that, you know, let me tiptoe into uh, how does this work as, uh, you know, your writing process when you sit down to write? Well, first of all, like Mm -hmm. in prologue, you guys got together and wrote these songs. Yeah. Correct? Not yeah. not like retrospect, but like prologue. Yeah. You got together and wrote these songs. So how does that how does that shake out? That yeah. Process? Fifty fifty. Fifty fifty. No, I mean I'm not talking you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, the advance said this was a music business podcast. <laughs> That's right, there we go. So. We're gonna go ahead and move on. No, it truly happens always. And actually a very significant component is in the end that no matter how it happens, it is fifty fifty. Right. Um and to to me, uh, I think Joey's on the same page. We've talked about this a lot is that that parody has always been important to Mm -hmm. just create a safe space of trying to go after what the best thing is but when you sit down and you start writing a song i mean 
is it sort of equal and somebody brings in an idea or is it one of those things where you come up with the idea right there while you're sitting down? It goes everything from sitting down with a blank page together, which right. we really do very seldomly mm-hmm. and, and don't particularly enjoy doing, mm-hmm. to, to all the way up to one of the other of us writes the song and it's completely finished and the other person, you bring it in and finished and the other person pitches changes if they feel like they have any and then you can then we agree on them or not but you know we have songs that just you know and Kenneth, that Kenneth will have brought in and I'll be like great and that no phenomenon song, I get half. so you have kind of a Lennon and McCartney agreement about this sort of thing yeah right mm-hmm. and that that phenomenon is sort of is second is the is the second most seldom right okay. usually it's somewhere in between yeah. somewhere in between but it is, and that the big difference to me between the Lennon and McCartney thing for the people that are really interested in this stuff is that um, so many of their recordings they would go on to actually make on their own mm-hmm. in the studio, and people would be out of that process. And there's only one song that that's ever happened on on our last album with with Joey and I, um, Joey and me. Joey and I. Mm-hmm. With Joey with and I with Joey and me with us with us Joey and me that only happened one time but and that's a that's a real exception and I think even a still a sore spot for him but um, <laughs> I but had to go pick my wife up from the airport when I came back he recorded this song that yep. I hadn't uh, been super crazy about uh-huh. and then made like this beautiful fan recording favorite. of fan favorite everyone loved it everybody loves it and I was like he oh great I should leave more often <laughs> but I think very significantly, but I still get half. Very significantly, even if one of us writes the song, there's a point at with at which we both have to contend with it and arrange it and put it into our voice. And so I think that's actually a, a key difference because so much of the um, the Lennon McCartney catalog of recordings, and it's endlessly fascinating to me how similar. Some of the recordings are that their their life outlook was so similar that it feels like they're a part of a singular bottle body of work. Because if Joey and I did that, went into studios with the songs we'd written and produced them and played most of the parts ourselves, they would come back not sounding. I don't think really anything like one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, a important part of our identity. And and I guess um, I hadn't thought of it this way, but there's maybe more than other bands just because of the terms we've defined much of our career there's a significant share of i think even the songwriting credit that is probably appropriately applied to arrangement mm-hmm. and uh, applied to uh, p- performance you know i mean it, it mm-hmm. can't work that way in the in the real world mm-hmm. because of time and space and uh, legal precedent um <laughs> <laughs> But it really is, it's true, there's a thing that's come to be really definite and meaningful between Joey and I that doesn't happen sometimes until the, an iteration of a performance we've done far, you know, you know hundreds of times into the song. Um, and I think sometimes we would be better served to wait until then to record it. We haven't done that very often, but it's definitely come to our attention on a number of... Uh, there's a whole list of songs that I can kind of call up and think, well, that song really didn't finally become its thing until we played it for the 45th time in Cleveland 
on that one tour and ever since then it feels like all of all of its um all of its effects are actually appointed now let's be specific can you tell me about the song new york and how you came to write this track here yeah. that, and how, how does this fit into this discussion you were just we were just having that one's one of the sort of rare examples that's a pretty that's pretty close to a blank page kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess mine is the music. I wrote all the music. Well, if I... And th- I wrote this the was hook. This was a long time ago, so maybe hook we'll remember music. it differently, but I feel like I kind of <laughs> wrote the hook in the music. you will remember no. it differently. Uh, no, Kenneth had this kind of like... Uh, I forget how much of it you had besides the the main like hook of it all. And do you remember that when you, you, were, you had it as I'll, I'll be, be New York, I'll you be added New York. In. Yeah, I'll be New York, and I was like, that doesn't mean anything. You need a preposition. <laughs> I'll be That's in true. New York, and then we sort of wrote the. I think that we wrote the verses together. Yes, you had a whole chord progression and everything in mind for the verses, and then we wrote the words together around this idea of like, I'll be in New York, and you may have had a verse that felt like you were leaving somebody getting away and like running off to New York, and then we sort of wrote a song around that. Yeah, it happens a lot in the duo. I don't know how much co-writing you do. I don't do hardly any co-writing outside of this band, and so I don't have um, a baseline for what's sort of common in th- in that environment. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely a song where right I came in with with an idea that I wasn't super convicted about, or else I would have put up more of a fight. But whatever I went in with was not an idea that made it to the end of the song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the spark of an idea that that maybe inspired wherever we took it from there. I'll be in New York Send for me when you want more I'll be in New York Without you like before I'm never lonely Off making trails Passed on the only woman dressed in veil Oh, it's you, my love It's you I'm running from You sold your first two records, Retrospect and Prologue, for free. Why the word sold? Did we ever put it that way? We also sold sold it. it, But but we also also gave gave it away for free. We were selling it and giving it away for free at the same time. So by and large, it was mainly a free download. Yeah, the we well, gave away way more copies than we sold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at digital, la- digital copies. Yeah. So there was millions, some kind of yeah. honor system going on that said, you know, if you no, want to no, pay no. us ten bucks for no, no. this record, it was just it was out there for free. Yeah, and that both one, of these records. Yeah, I was sort of pissed at that time at people doing that. Mm-hmm. Let me clarify, because you this was a, a genius, uh, in my opinion. Um, you could cynically call it a marketing ploy, but also it was just sort of reflective of of our ethos mm-hmm. and the way that we felt like music functioned in society at that time in 2011, which was like, I think, the actual nadir, the depths of the music industry's destruction. And we... 
kind of, it's kind of was, I think about to say, and then mostly most of this was his vision. Everybody was trying to give stuff away for free. They weren't really giving it away for free because they were like, oh, sign up for my email list and get a free track, or like pay what you want because Radiohead invented pay what you want, except they were already Radiohead. And so for us, Kenneth was like, this is stupid. If you want to give a thing away for free, just give it away for free. And so his point was, and it ended up being very. Once it clicked for me in my head of what actually what that meant, it was it was very um, refl- it reflected something that we both I think held deeply about about how p- you should engage with music with your fans was like okay, if free is an option at this point, let's just make it one of the options. And we give we put our music up for all of the available options at the time, yeah, which we, was we for posted sale a on zip a file on Twitter. You know, I mean, it was hosted on our website, but there's a tweet. Still With to this zip. day, you can go to our website and just click a button and download those records for free. Mm-hmm. But it's we put it on iTunes, we put it all on the streaming services, we printed vinyl, we printed CDs because, and when we look back on it, we realize that people get music the way they want to get music. So just because you gave them a free download doesn't mean they're not going to buy your vinyl. If someone listens to vinyl, they're going to want a vinyl. If someone listens on iTunes, like my mother, she's not going to figure out how to deal with a 300 megabyte zip file and one of our stage bits about it was like it's a zip file that you can download for free you just click on it and a zip file downloads and if you don't know how to work a zip file we don't want you as our fan (laughs) (laughs) but it's which is a joke but also it's like if you if that's what you want you can have that and if you want you know all these other things and so i think it it engendered a great amount of goodwill with our infinitesimal but burgeoning fan base and it just sort of acknowledged the reality of 2011 in music which was that there's no rules there's no safety or protections from anything it's just the fucking wild west that was the thing the timing was right because if you did that now i don't i don't think it makes any impact nobody would download for free now because everybody's on stream yeah they would they would just click over to spotify and search your name where they already are where they're used to it but Mm -hmm. then it was like twitter twitter was maybe three years old and and so they were and facebook was sort of in the same it was like before your mom was on it but (laughs) your you know like your cousin was already there so like there were people but it wasn't it hasn't it hadn't become the noise that it's become now Mm -hmm. and that was something unique scrolling past you because mm-hmm. if you were tuned in, if you were tuned into like a hyper indie scene, the thing you would always be seeing is, yeah, trade it for an email address or trade it for this. And at this point, like I can only imagine, the the artists that are engaging that are sitting on the other side, having to have this weird dialogue with every single one of their fans, where there, where there's some kind of interaction going on, and the and. Who knows if anybody's even listening to the music? It's just this weird human thing that's happening. Did it create a boost? Did it create a boost in your audience? It was the whole thing. It was the whole jump kickstart of the whole thing. Kickstarter wasn't a thing, but I just used the word kickstart. Sure, I got it. (laughs) Generically. (laughs) Uh, No, it started the whole thing. Because the thing we didn't maybe realize that turned out to be the most powerful part of it was asking somebody for... 10 minutes of their time for a large download to complete and then opening it up and being presented with all of your album art and all of your lyrics and all of the audio files in in the high resolution 
downloads that they and it's you're actually asking for a lot in of their attention and I would venture that some insanely high percentage, close to 100% of the people who downloaded that album for free in a full-on zip file with all of the related materials actually sat and listened to the whole album. And if you get somebody to click on your Spotify link and take you over to their album, it might be 40 seconds before they get a text message and they get distracted or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like, th it's actually a very intimate process. Mm -hmm. You know, they're letting you onto your their hard drive for it forever because they don't know how to delete it mm -hmm. later know? when we signed to a uh, record label mm -hmm. and we kind of went in there real arrogantly wanting to we, we thought that the the free download thing was so crucial to our success that we tried to sign to a record deal where we could preserve the ability to give that away again right. and we got damn near close on a f on a few of them and uh the label that we ultimately ended up going with i remember the the me the first meeting we had with them after we signed and we were kind of in a passionate conversation about the merits of what what could be going on there the the president looked at us and he said he said did it ever occur to you guys that you found an audience and got successful because it was good. Um, and that but was... But he was wrong. It was because it was free. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's true. But but the point remains, and it, it actually remains a really important um, moment in our career and just personally because uh, of my, my lifelong... Uh, relationship with insecurity and and <laughs> with insecurity specifically as it uh, relates to self-expression is that yeah it was free but if it was free and it sucked it wouldn't have mattered it was good mm -hmm. um, and you can't go back and do it again but had we gone back and done it again in a more traditional way uh, I have to believe at this point that what Joey and I on a musical level were doing was good enough that we still would have had a shot no. at breaking through it, making some noise. No way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tough as nails, I test it all the time. I make my bed, and then I lie. I try to say. What's mine is mine, but it's just another storyline. So you were included um, on the uh, record that uh, was uh, behind um, Inside Lewin Davis, right? How did that? Uh, how was? How did? How were you included? In, in we ended up on the mark. We ended up like catching a really great um, br career break as a result of the marketing plan for the Cohen Brothers inside Lewin Davis right. because we had absolutely nothing to do with the movie itself. It had nothing to do with the music that had anything to do with the movie. It was none of that. It's that that film got finished. Joel and Ethan Cohen were pressed for a spirited marketing idea and I think based on their global success with Oh Brother, oh Brother Where Art Thou 10 years earlier um, they thought focusing on the music would be something worth their while. So they and Scott Rudin and T-Bone Burnett put together a concert in New York that was sort of, in a very T-Bone Burnett way, 
was just sort of loosely affiliated and ins uh, inspired by all of the music that was actually in the movie. And so, in the end, what came together was... Which is Greenwich Village, New mm -hmm. York, you know, folk from the 60s. Right. Immediately pre-Dylan is when the movie right, takes place, right. obviously. But right. so what came together was a really is a really cool musical artifact. It's, you know, some of the actors from the movie playing the songs that are in the movie, but it's right. also... Elvis Costello doing a version of stuff, and it's and it's Joan Baez showing up and and doing something. Um, but so the whole hey, those are on the those are on the soundtrack. No, the, so the whole are, this, this is the gig. This is the gig. This was a okay. gig that okay. they put together that literally is like Sony marketing money uh, because it ended up being a, a concert film that played on Showtime essentially as a as a commercial that ran for two months before the film came out, mm -hmm. and so we were one of four acts that I think um, uh, Jason Colton, the manager for the Punch Brothers, he was pretty heavily involved in, in booking the talent with T-Bone on that show. Um, and so I think they had they had marked a few spots for so-called newcomers to come and mm -hmm. present people to this folk audience that was somehow clued and into and it. You were and we were picked, one of them. Picked yeah. with, with whom? It was Secret Sisters, Lake Street Dive, and Rhiannon Giddens, and okay. us. We were the four yeah. people on that show that kind of didn't have any national profile. Everybody else on the show, right. Gina Welch, Dave Rollins, Colin Malloy, sure. Elvis Costello, Joan Baez. Avett's Mumford. Avett Brothers, Mumford yeah, Son. All of them had you know, a, a career that sort of predicated their involvement. But we and were uh, what, what did you think of that movie? The movie or the concert film? The movie. I loved the movie, yeah. and yeah. as as Me with too. most Coen Brothers movies, I loved it even more the second time I saw it. Really? Because that's yeah. when I realized that it was a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and Oscar Isaac was a comedian? Or He's he fantastic. was a straight man, huh? I, I, yeah, I guess. They're all dark comedies. Once you realize yeah. that the characters are meant to be funny uh -huh. and the fact that he's chasing a cat around right. Timbuktu is hilarious intrinsically, yeah. then yeah, then the whole thing is just a dark comedy rather than some obtuse, depressing profile of a folk singer. Ain't no coming back now, ain't no coming back around so long Long before the sun goes down So uh, you, you guys acted in the TV show Vinyl? Uh, yeah. It was a cable TV show, right? We, we had uh, we were in England, Dan, and John Ford Coley. We even did mild Texas accents with fake mustaches and straightened hair. Yeah? Yeah. I missed that. I'm sorry. Oh, you got to <laughs> see it. I, I wish I'd have seen it. You can look on the internet. Uh, do you sing a song or uh -huh. you... you uh, yeah. do, do some, you know, have some lines and yeah, that sort of thing. Exactly. We the scene, yeah, we, the re we recreated, we recut their song, Simone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was one day in a recording studio just making an honest version, our version of Simone. Right. And then the, the next day was filming the scene, and the scene took place in the recording studio, r us recording Simone. But the, um, the A&R guy hates it, hates us, 
hates yacht rock in the narr- the narr- in the in the show yeah. yeah. Okay. Probably yeah. in real life too. Jack Quaid <laughs> didn't take too kindly to it. No, he was fine. Uh, yeah, and so you know, we they stop us in the middle of it and tell us we're screwing it up, and we kind of have we have a couple lines in the middle of the uh, of the take. So that's the stuff my favorite for part of that. Actually, a little if 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 you I don't know if anybody will find this interesting, but they told us in singing the scene that we could just limp lip sync. Uh, because they were going to use the studio audio that we had recorded the day before in the studio. But then the director was like, okay, it doesn't look real when you're lip syncing, so you need to actually sing. And we had these headphones on, but like there was barely any, and it was like these little tinny, this little tinny sound coming out of one ear, because we weren't like trying, really trying to perform the song. So then, and we were like, well, we can't hear anything and we can't hear each other. He was like, it doesn't matter. You're, we're going to use the other audio anyway, but the lip syncing doesn't look real. So you have to like really sing it. So we're singing out loud in the room as we're acting and we have headphones on. So you, literally we can't hear each other or anything. We're just singing sort of randomly into the room. And that's the audio they end up using <laughs> in the final take, which actually saved the whole scene because the gag is that we suck ah. and they hate it. Ah, ah. And so it makes it makes it so much funnier that like actually we're singing really shitty. Ah. And I never knew if that was like part of so his plan. Like Mark Wahlberg and Boogie Nights or something, or John C. <laughs> Riley, that sort of thing. I that w- that bad? I wish we had been in Boogie Nights. Yeah. Oh uh, no, no, it's not that bad. Yeah. It's just like it's like two. It's like kind of I don't know. It's two guys you can tell could sing but are blowing it. Ah, okay. Yeah, because that's right. what it kind of yeah. just was. That's the frustrative is cool, you know. Since there's no money in music anymore, well, unless you're like Drake or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, or you get into podcasts. Or you, get, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I'll tell uh, you about that later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, but so through the when you're on a film like that, that was that's our, I guess our big studio New York City experience before it all gets wiped away. That you know the song when we recut, recut it, it meant that we got we got to go into Sear Sound and sing on uh you know U47s from the 50s and and Billy Payne played piano yeah, on like the track. It's like the only big budget recording session we've ever had a, p- yeah. been a part of. And Billy Payne played piano on the track and who who Stuart Lerman produced it but who um why am I blanking on the guitar player that that arranged everything um, that played with Dylan forever? St- yeah. Um, why am I blanking on his first Mike? name? No, Mike Campbell's from the Heartbreakers. Who who the hell is the guitar player? Bill Campbell. Bill Campbell. I know a Bill Campbell. That sounds Campbell. like a fake. That's like, <laughs> that's like your dentist or something. Yeah, no, 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 I, know. No, I know who you're talking Larry about. Larry Campbell. Larry it's Campbell. Roger right, Campbell. I know. Yeah. Larry Campbell. Yes. Pardon me, Larry, if you listen to this. Um, because the point of the story is we got to Roger. We got to cut the tune with Larry Campbell and fucking Billy Payne and singing in one of the great New York City studios of all time. Mm. And then the next day, the where we actually filmed the scene was in the big room at Avatar up the street in in Hell's Kitchen. And so like that's our uh, because of HBO money, mm-hmm. we got our our big city New York. Mm-hmm. music studio experiences which That's is cool. kind of fun Simone, why do you cry don't you know you've got a lie now don't 
guys seem like you get involved in some some pretty cool and and large things. That, however, you seem somewhat unaffected by it. And I don't and I don't assume that it's being cynical or jaded. It's just like you, it's you just enjoy it that way, I guess, huh? You yeah. Yeah, I'll tell. This is gonna sound very. It was super demure. fun. Oh, so you go ahead. You go. This is gonna sound very um, demure, but it and it's not. It's that Joey and I are kind of good at one thing, and it's our. It's like when we play songs together and we can do it on our own terms. We're pretty good at that. Right. It's like it's pretty. It can be special. It can be unique even right. sometimes. Um, and as I've learned over many years now, there's some sort of social quality that he and I have especially together that's not like not really of the musician order mm -hmm. and I feel like a combination of those two things means we we sort of get asked to do fun cool stuff and when we show up people aren't embarrassed by having asked us mm -hmm. and it seems to be like a good time mm -hmm. for everybody and I think that's um, paved the way for us to have a lot of Sort of strange opportunities because you're right. They're not like when you look at them. They're not like little blip thing. It's like kind of right. It's weird. Like it's I saw Tony Bennett eating breakfast one time. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That honestly sounds cooler than some of this stuff. Yeah. No, no. I, I, I admire you guys. You, you really handle it well. Turn around and close the door. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Kenneth Pattengale and Joey Ryan of the Milk Carton Kids shortly. At Americana Podcast, it is our goal to define and expand the genre of Americana music. With help from our good friend and musical connoisseur, Will Vote, this is Will's Pick. Life on Fire by Mitpachi from the record Liberty Street. Americana music is built on subgenres, and it's very exciting to see a new one emerge. One of these artists contributing to the landscape of Americana music in a broader form is Mapache, a duo from Southern California. Some people are calling their sound West Coast Cosmic Americana. I really like that title. We're not quite sure what that means, but when we hear the music, it harkens back to 60s vintage California folk rock with some Mexican influences thrown in for good measure. There are also influences of Crosby, Stills and Nash, Gene Clark and the Birds, America, and maybe even a little Everly Brothers on the recent release called From Liberty Street. That's all in the mix, but this is definitely not a cover band. Their original songs are varied, tuneful, and have compelling, catchy lyrics. Three of the songs from Liberty Street are sung in Spanish, which reflect the influence of traditional Mexican music in their playing. Sam Blasucci and Clay Finch met in high school in Los Angeles and came together over an interest in songwriting and skateboarding. Very California. The duo played in several bands before forming Mapache in 2016. Sharing a love of country music, the Grateful Dead, and all things California, the duo has found a sound that echoes the world they live in and resonates with their fans. On Mapache's second full-length album from Liberty Street, which they recorded live in a house on, you guessed it, Liberty Street, 
The opening track is Life on Fire. It is a love song that features the duo's soaring harmonies and guitars over an interesting rhythmic signature a la Bruce Springsteen, I'm on Fire, but it's one that will certainly draw you in, making it Will's pick. This is one, uh, Monterey, just to, just yeah. to go back, Monterey was one that you used different pr producers on and recorded in three different places, correct? Yeah. Well, we did. It's even cooler than that. We took, um, we went out. I, I I can fix this whole thing. Okay. It's this was, we, we, well, let me fix the whole Tom thing. Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt. And Nicole Kidman all produced. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I could. The, the that was a hell of an after party. Yeah, say, yeah. right. Yeah. I think it's funny that those are my movie star references yeah. too. That's so weird that I go to that. Yeah. So well, it's like just interview with a vampire. About ten years and <laughs> nine hundred shows later. It's nineteen ninety seven all the time right. in my brain. Yeah, I I apologize for him. <laughs> He's in seventy six, you're in ninety seven. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. And this explains everything. Yeah. That explains everything. But but so here in twenty nineteen it's ten years and about nine hundred shows later, it was very clear from the beginning that our live show was the thing that was was the deepest connection to our fans, was the most um, alive artistic representation of what we do. Um, when I look back on it, I'm proud of all of our albums, but they're very insignificant compared to the live show in our career. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and up until our album, all the things with the band, I think over the course of the seven years of our career before then, we had spent a sum total of about eight days in a recording studio. Mm -hmm. You know, the, we would go in and cut these albums in two and a half days, and they would not be the gold standard recordings of the songs as they existed, that would happen 40 shows down the road, sort of as we talked about earlier. But when it came to make Monterey, which we put out in 2015, um, the idea to bridge the gap on that phenomenon was, it was the first year we went on a tour bus and so it was the first time that when we got to a new city to do shows, we'd be there at 9 a.m. that day and not at 4 p.m. when we'd be rolling in. And so uh, it occurred to me there was six hours in the day that w weren't being used, and we were playing all these beautiful concert halls. And uh, I convinced Joey to let me put a mobile recording rig in the bay of the bus and so every day started with us loading into the venue and recording on an empty stage. And when we got home at the end of that year, uh, we had like the song Monterey itself. I had 45 different versions from, you know, 20 cities to listen that took place over the course of three months. Although, can I to correct to you to on the genesis of the idea? Because the causal chain was the sure. opposite. All right. We had yeah. a 55 city tour booked and kind of freaked out about doing it in a van because we'd been in a van for about five years straight without ever getting out of it. And the last time we had done a van tour, 
he like tore a ligament in his knee just standing there. And we were in such terrible physical <laughs> and mental and emotional shape that he was like, I don't think I can do this tour, 55 cities in a van, we need a bus. And I was like, well, we can't afford it, which also explains everything. And uh, he was like, well, what if, you know, if we do it, we get these six hours back, we can, you know, we can actually be productive all day rather than sit in a damn car again. And so let's get the money from the label to make that we're going to use to make the album. We'll put that towards the bus and like make it a, a try and make it a break even, which I think we almost kind of did. And when we, when we're done with it, we'll have the record. So the, the, the causal chain there was a little different, but yeah, the idea in, in the I end, I can be pretty crafty. I get what I want. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it well, it like was it that out, or huh? cancel the tour. <laughs> yeah. No, well, <laughs> it worked out and we've definitely tour. broke even. Yeah, it's yeah. been a, it's been a, 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 financially positive experience in the long run. And it will well, actually, and you know, be. do you remember what the bargain was? It'll continue to be. I don't remember the bargain. What was the bargain? The bargain was that was, the, that was the last tour that we did that we couldn't afford a bus. And since then, we've been able to afford a bus. And I said, okay, we can do this tour in a bus, but the next one, we got to do it in a van, even though we can't afford it. So then we did a, to another tour even bigger, where we really could afford a bus, but we did it with just me and Kenneth and our the guy that had been on the road with us like selling merch for like 40 cities in a minivan and made the most money we ever made in our lives and almost killed each other and basically <laughs> broke up for a year afterwards. <laughs> But it all worked out. And with that said, Monterey is, of the Milk Carton Kids work up until then, is my favorite sounding record, I think, uh, sonically. And, and, not, and coincidentally, the first one that you engineered. True. <laughs> and the performances, hands down, are night and day different from our earlier work, and to me are really important. And I think, uh, I think history will prove this not to be the case, but in the here and now and in the recent past, the songs didn't connect as much as the album, the two albums prior it. And I think that explains sort of where it sits now. I feel like maybe give it a few decades and... It uh, does have... That I agree with you on the performances, though, and the sound. I, I think that we did capture finally the things that happened between us on stage. Anytime my life flashes in front of me I see a child there as if on a screen Standing in the shadows flickering For a moment I know what it means And we want to talk about, we've been talking about touring But let's talk about uh, touring a little bit um, as far as your live show, so your live show has sort of a, the theatrically classical comedic banter between songs. Uh, is this an extemporaneous discourse between you two or something that you work on? Um, both. Mm -hmm. We, uh, more the former, but yeah, the. It evolves, so we, I don't think we ever re really, I can't think of a time that we've sat down and written no. some sort of bit mm -hmm. in advance, but we know that we like talking to each other on stage and talking to the audience, and so we just allow ourselves time during the this, this set, you know, 
to to do that and then certain song intros or stories or whatever kind of crystallize mm -hmm. uh we're sort of improvising and then we, if something works we'll maybe remember it and go back to it the next night and let it evolve and uh so yeah then certain things evolve and crystallize but then there's always one or two slots where we like keep it open to be to specifically not have a game plan and just be like all right we're gonna talk to each other or the audience or whatever i've been producing a lot of records in the last few years and the thing that that screams through loud and clear at every single turn is that the best you can do and it's a perspective maybe i didn't get until i'd been on that side of the glass the best any musician can do is just to try to be the best version of themselves, but they can't change themselves. Mm -hmm. And when you get into a studio, when you're fighting to hear your vision translate on the speakers, you start to challenge yourself in a way where you try to do things that are unnatural to you. And sometimes it's a producer, sometimes it's other musicians, sometimes it y it's yourself, but not until you gain the perspective where you then lean back into what you are and, and you try to achieve the best version of what you're capable is. Do you find success? That's been my experience with music. Um, Joey and I think, again, because of the nature of our duo, we're very lucky to have that dynamic as a, as a necessity for us to even function. Mm -hmm. We're not gonna, it's not gonna work unless we're refining in a self-reflexive way, what we do to distill it to its best essence, uh, and that's how the that's how the banter came about too. It w it's a combination of necessity and hard work and vision and and a lot of luck in the beginning. Specifically, how it happened was uh, I had a, sh a shitty guitar that the guitar strings would break a lot, and also having seen Joey's live show before we worked together, I knew that he was terrible at talking with an audience. Um, That's not true. It was true. It was unwatchable. <laughs> it was it was embarrassing and uncomfortable and not interesting. It was he made all of the mistakes. And so we started a band and I would break guitar strings and have to go off stage and restring a guitar and he would be left there to speak with an audience for minutes at a time. Oh, it was the best. And when we started the band, I, s I made some rules based on what I had seen of his show. As I said, you can't, uh, you can't talk about the song we're about to play. You can't tell him what it's about. I understand that's uh, kind of a rule with you, huh? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, you can't do it. Can't talk about the song before you play the Did song. It don't tell There's him what the exceptions. song's about and don't say what the name of the song yeah. is. Those are the Otherwise, rules. everything is on limits. But this is the reason, is because the first time I saw him play, and you've been to this show also, it's not just Joey, it's human nature, right. is when somebody doesn't know what to say to an audience, or they're not... Yeah, but I had some good stories cooking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the point is, it's... it's um, it w uh, as a real natural combination of our sensibilities, there was, uh, there was a need on that front of our show, that when I break a string, you can't go, this next song's about blah, 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 because it, to me it demystifies the meaning of the song you're about to play. At best, at worst, it blows massive holes in your shitty songwriting ability, because if you can't say what you wanted to say in your damn song, if you have to say it before, 
you shouldn't be writing and singing songs. You know what songs. I just realized? It was probably because I was introing your songs. Probably. <laughs> no, no, I did, that, that came out wrong. What I mean is, like, you, you, had, you felt purchase over what I was going to say because it was setting up your song. And I was probably setting up your songs in a way that you didn't like. So you were like, and I was like, well, you're breaking strings. I got to say something. And you were like, well, don't tell them what it's about and don't say the name of it because I don't like when you tell them the name of my song or what it's about. And then we ended, then, so then probably what I ended up doing, then we would probably evolved into that Charlie bit about your song where instead of, he's got this song that he wrote about the imaginary future daughter that he's, gonna have and so i probably would have just said like here's a song that kenneth wrote about his imaginary future daughter which is of course a spoiler for the entire goddamn thing <laughs> but so it evolved into about a four minute story where i set it up as 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 uh with a punchline or where you like say very sincerely that this kid's song that kenneth wrote for the daughter that he's having and you set it up like he's looking forward to having this daughter and then only at the very end you reveal that he's that there's no mother yet before that's probably the origins of the yeah, whole thing was that specific bit which we ended up doing for six years before you had the light bulb moment of figuring that out what really happened was i would break strings the rules were in place i'd go off stage to do it and he would be up there with a blank canvas and just have to start saying whatever came to his mind and we learned very quickly that when Joey specifically does that in front of a room full of people, they laugh. Mm -hmm. And it's not really known why. Because <laughs> it's not like he's specifically saying anything funny. There's just, some, in his nascent state, standing in front of a crowd, the people chuckle. Maybe out of nervousness. Who knows? My point being is that just like the music, it's, it's an expression of actually, truly, first, who Joey is, um, and it's something that when we recognized it as being some sort of exceptional talent or something that was connecting an, with an audience, then you turn to it and you examine it and you work on it. But also we were playing these like really self-serious folk songs in suits. And as you know, we named ourselves after our own song lyric. And and and, it and a sad one at that. And we just need it there. It turns out that this this show that we put on is emotionally incomplete. If you don't have some sort, if you don't undercut it in some way, like there's, you know, there's such a, there's such a sense of reverence in a lot of, I think what we do, other than, you know, and we ha and you so you have to break it up by by undermining the conventions of a folk concert or a theater show or being an acoustic folk duo or whatever, you know, it's, it just makes it tolerable, in some way, if you at least are self-aware. When I met you, you could look in my eyes and see a love light burning there. I used to walk up in the hills at dawn to see the world coming up for air. You could have told me it would never end, nothing could ever come between such two good friends. Make me another promise if you can dare. Just look at us now. And you guys are now, um, this is your second year going into uh, hosting the Americana Music Awards, right? That's and, right. Uh, so, okay, well, we talked earlier about, like, you know, extemporaneous or prepared as far as, like, your uh, live show. Are you preparing for uh, 
the Americana Music Awards or constantly, constantly. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah, yeah. This is, this is sort of the one thing where we write write mm-hmm. for it, mm-hmm. and we're de- there's definitely an understanding between the two of us and between us and the organizers right. that we might go off the rails. Um, but we, we were prepared. There's teleprompters, there's stuff on the prompters for us. Um, yeah, we're not going to do a three hour program. So you, do you write this yourself or do you do other writers for you? Last year we hired, well, there's, uh, it's like a game of hot potato, right? (laughs) There's a wonder, there's a writer, there's a writer (laughs) called Grant. Hot potato, but the (laughs) potato's the pen. Uh And, uh, everybody hates potatoes in the room. (laughs) There's a writer for the show mm-hmm. called Grant Alden. He's been writing the show for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a music journalist. And so he writes he writes the show mm-hmm. and he puts in some jokes and he lets us keep what we want and throw out what we want. And so um, we've been, last year we hired also a comedian named Wayne Fetterman to, who writes for a lot of real award shows mm-hmm. to come and help us do this one. And uh, that was a great experience. And this year, we're just doing it ourselves with Grant. Um, so you know, there's only like a handful of segments that we really drive. Yeah. A lot of it is just ushering the night through. And like one thing we learned from Wayne is like you don't have to make a meal out of every single time you get up there. Like sometimes just bring the next person on. It's a long show. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can, if you have a couple moments that sort of set the tone, get everyone on the same page together in the audience, then just let the show move everyone's yeah. there to see music i mean the biggest laughs last year were ad lib and then mm-hmm. you have to remember this isn't you know we're not billy crystal at the oscars nobody's mm-hmm. really tuning in for that there's it's a well nobody's really tuning in oh, no, I, I saw the sh- show it was r- yeah. really entertaining i mean it was fun and it was lively and you did what you're supposed to do on those yeah kind of things. again you know like Thank like you. everything in our career, and then also again in this, in the specifically in the Americana community, I think this is true. Um, it being our second year, I was thinking this the other day that that we're very lucky, actually. Like it's not a it's not a light responsibility. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's uh, it's an it's an honor that's bestowed upon us. But it's not like we won some like American Idol contest to be the thing that fits the perfect brand thing. Whatever. It's just we've been hanging around a while, mm-hmm. and at some <laughs> point, at some point, it was appropriate for us to do that. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't blow it, and so they asked us again. But it's like we're doing our thing, we're working hard. But it's just going to be what it is. The same way the rest of it, mm-hmm. the rest of music and the songs we write, all of it. And so it's like. Yeah, this week we got to pay a little more attention to the 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 bottom line of some of the formality. But other than that, it's like it's kind of it's as much a gig that came to us as a gig that we came to. And and you know, we go there like they're all of our friends mm-hmm. and the people that we don't know that's on the show tomorrow, mm-hmm. they're going to be friends because they're just a part of the community we haven't been and exposed to. And it's a lot of people yet. that we idolize. Mm-hmm. So have you written uh, part two of the Americana song? Uh, no, no. Not There's not going to be an opening musical number <laughs> this year. We're working on a different thing. Uh, to that went over well, though. It, it was a yeah, yeah. It really went over well. It was. I Funny. think it. Yeah. Well, it was. A, that was like one of the couple. Well, it was one of the moments where, like, it's you know, it was our 
segment to kind of get everyone on the same page, kind of maybe say something that would unify everybody in terms of like maybe something that everybody's got on their mind that mm. everybody can relate to and mm. brings everyone together to like mm. be in the same headspace for the rest of the show. Uh, but the, then after that, like uh, another huge lesson we learned in the process and uh, in real time and, and for this year was maybe different from other award shows, the hosts, uh, we are not the stars of the show mm. at all. You know, I mean, the, when you look at when you watch award shows on TV or whatever, like they market it with the host as the star. The host is in every scene. They do all the transitions. They have j jokes throughout the night. Like we're actually on stage very little and the stars of the show are the nominees the like the various lifetime achievement award winners basically the performers mm -hmm. the show is about musical performance so mm -hmm. we're kind of like glorified ushers mm -hmm. basically <laughs> is the way i see it <laughs> which is re a relief but is also that how you is that how you feel kenner yeah, yeah it it is and i'll tell you the americana song all credit goes to joey ryan that was that was uh, Joey did that last year, and I think that it was really important, given the um, the uh, last year there were internal politics of the situation that were um, that loomed large enough that it was important that we do well. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's specific. That sounds that sounds very um, Illuminati. It's not that. It's that <laughs> it was our first year. It was our first year, and and we were. Jim stepping into a role that Jim Lauderdale had done for 13 years and had done well and in his style. And it was something that in the end we sort of realized was like a hot political item behind the scenes. And, and so maybe us being there would have just a kind of different access point to what is Americana for the audience that sits in the Ryman and the community um, a little further beyond that. And so I think it was important that we we came out a little big, mm -hmm. uh, just just to at least sort of say, mm -hmm. hey everybody, this is why they asked us to do this, mm -hmm. and um, and Joey's song definitely served that purpose, and I am really excited to the idea of going into Wednesday on this gig specifically, sort of with that in the past, right. in complete earnestness, and I like that maybe specifically how last year went down maybe buys us the ability to do the opposite thing this year come out and make our contribution just on a musical level and then you know make some funny jokes <laughs> as <laughs> maybe as we see fit i used to have a poster it was from pat chopra and it had a it had a big picture of a clown and it said funny comedian lay me down in the ground put me back into the among all of my friends under a blanket of roses They see hot flowers overhead So uh, here at Americana Podcast, our goal is to define, explore, and expand the genre of Americana music. This is... Uh, this is something that we're uh, working on and talk to every artist that we talk to and we'd like to ask your uh, a couple of and for a couple of questions about Americana 
music. If you were in charge of the entire genre, as in you woke up and you were the kings of Americana, are there any aspects that you would either adopt or discard? Well, first of all, I thought that that's kind of what we were now <laughs> as like returning for the second year hosts. I just can't. Yeah. Be, is that oh, not? You are the king. Oh, yes, abso- absolutely. Not? The kings? Can't yeah. be two kings. Yeah, so now it's, it's up to you. King. I never heard you. two kings at the same time. Well, uh, well we're gonna uh, have to okay. choose one. Um, let, let's say uh, the. Um, if we woke up in Jed Hilly's position, there you that's go. What there you go. Yeah. Ask. Yeah. Right. Hmm? And I, I don't think I would change anything mm-hmm. um, that would come from a, a single point such as that. The mm-hmm. thing that I would like to see the community take on mm-hmm. is that I think I'd like to see maybe um, musicians and artists that don't necessarily identify themselves as Americana, mm-hmm. I would, I, I, I'll always be excited to see the transformation of somebody realizing that they find, um, they find brethren among them, amongst the Americana ranks, mm-hmm. and that the, s- the simple inclusion of people that don't necessarily think that they are when they find a community that they resound with, the the sort of um, diversity that is added to the fabric at that point, I think is something that will always excite me insofar mm-hmm. as what the Americana term is. To me, Americana specifically is sort of this weird um, sort of post-classical branding of what just folk music is. Mm-hmm. I think Americana is a a thing that's sprung forth as a reflection of a of you know there's a there's a group of people that need to hear Jason Isbell on the radio mm-hmm. and they can't necessarily call themselves country fans and expect country radio to play Jason the same thing in the NPR format or in the folk format um, and Jason's a clear example amongst many other people around us where I think that need is just being recognized in, as I said, a sort of branded way. But to me, these are all people that are just, they wrote songs in their bedroom and they're coming to life on stage. And that's kind of what folk music always was. Mm -hmm. I think there's a connotation to folk music that might not include some of these other people. Um, And so to me, that's always been the most exciting aspect of what this community is. And the more people that self-identify as it i think the richer we'll be as a community and as participants so joe your thoughts yeah i like that i think that my, i basically i'm gonna say the same thing but with the specific example in mind that i don't if we were the kings uh, um of americana he's really excited by that prospect <laughs> <laughs> keeps returning to it. I'm not saying we're the kings of Americana. I'm just saying I, I think Robert said that. I so just think it's sort if of any, betrayed. You I said that, print, but we're living could, in a different universe here. You could now somebody if somebody prints that, mm-hmm. then it goes it on Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and then it's true yes. forever. Yes, and you can't get rid of it. Can't get There's rid. There's no of it. more MySpace. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're but you know what better place to be so, to be in uh, uh, you know in infinitely being the kings. That's right. right. Yeah, sure. Well, so the thing that I would specifically love to see included is what I think is the only, I think, the only true modern folk music being made today, which I guess is redundant to say that it's modern and being made today, but uh, uh, is rap, Mm -hmm. rap music. 
Yeah. I think it's the the only music where there's really very distinct regional differences in styles that emerge from sub regional subcultures and the way that it the way that stories from communities especially underrepresented communities come to light in sort of an organic way just by like a survival of the fittest thing between but, but like dudes making music and even women making music on their laptops and putting it on the internet and like whole scenes and cultures emerge that sort of have a real local identity that's kind of what i think of as folk music as being in its truest sense is you know stories of of people from disparate places that you know can then then they they those stories travel through the music and then you learn about each other and and uh figure out what's what we have in common and what the differences are anyway i think that's happened that happens in 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 rap right now and i don't really think it, see it happening in other genres although i could be wrong um but that yeah that sense of storytelling and of regional identity I, w I think of as being intrinsic to folk music and it's really only happening there and so i would love if that became you know part of this uh big tent mm -hmm. as the tent gets bigger just stay tuned for our remix of old town road uh, now i don't think we <laughs> should do it <laughs> let me be very clear this is not your job no. You're just being the kings, that's all. Oh, little baby, oh, where did you go? How did you get down in that deep, dark hole? How the hell we gonna get out? Where the hell we gonna go? Let's make a ride off to the blistering sun. Let's make the morning like we already won. Baby, let's fake it like we aren't the only one. What if we turn the other way? We're going to wind it down here with the lightning round. This is uh, either either or, and uh, there are um, uh, tremendous uh, prizes, cash and prizes, being rewarded to other people in other parts of the world right now. But there's nothing going on here <laughs> except for just the answer to these questions. Okay, okay. so. Uh, here we go. Ready? Ready? And you just jump in. First question is: Simon and Garfunkel or the Smothers Brothers? Smothers. Mm. Simon. Ah. <laughs> Longboard or shortboard? Longboard. Shortboard. What? Sure. New England clam chowder. New England clam chowder or New York clam chowder? New, New England. England. Yeah. Ah, we have agreement here. Yeah. Uh -huh. Bing, Bing. Mostly okay. because of Ace Ventura. <laughs> It's the password, but it's also a dairy-based question, so it <laughs> might be ruled. Uh, er, oh, because our band name, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, cool. All right. Yeah, it's cream, cream-based. Yeah, cream, cream. Yeah. Based. Skis or snowboards? Skis. Skis and snowboards. And snowboards. Yeah. You're saying skis and snowboards. Yeah. You know, I like the idea of of this. I thought this was lightning round. Yeah, but. I call bullshit on it because this is slow, slow lightning. Slow lightning. <laughs> yeah. This is our speed. Yeah. Have you done both? Me? Yeah. Yes, I have. Yeah. 
both quite enjoyable in uh, different ways. Well, not for me, but I uh, hate maybe snowboarding. for you. Huh? I hate snowboarding. I, 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 I'm just not any good at it. So that, yeah. that would be the answer yeah. for me. I just both. Okay. The, you know, yeah, I've, maybe I'm privileged that I could do both. But Fair if anybody <laughs> hasn't snowboarded and you want to try snowboarding, I would first suggest just taking like a a padded sledgehammer and hitting yourself in the tailbone about <laughs> 400 times, like with medium <laughs> force. Yeah, and see how you feel the next day. And if you like that feeling, then snowboarding might be for you. And if anybody in the audience hasn't ever skied before, <laughs> just go put on multiple pairs of pants, sit by a fire, sweat, and drink a hot toddy. <laughs> that's, that's All right, what I Lake like. Tahoe or Las Vegas? Tahoe. Oh, Tahoe. oh wait, Are, do you mean for gambling? Just uh, one or the other. Tahoe. I'm Ta- not gambling. Yeah, Tahoe. Place. Okay. All the things you did do in your life or all the things you didn't do in your life. <laughs> the things that you did. Did. Yeah. Did do. Did. Dodgers yeah. or Angels? Dodgers. Dodgers. The film Get Shorty or the film Almost Famous? Get Shorty. I don't know if I saw Get Shorty. No? Which one is that? That's with uh, John Travolta and... Uh, Lots of oh, LA yeah, stuff. yeah, right, right. I don't think Del I saw Roy it, Lindo. but I like Almost yeah. Famous, and he said Get Shorty, so I'll do Almost Famous. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> if you were <laughs> celebrating Lawrence, no, this is a, this is a uh, multiple choice que- question, yep. right? mm-hmm. and this is the last one on that. If you were celebrating Lawrence Ferengetti's day in the, in the city where it originated, you would be in A, Florence, Italy, B, Venice Beach, C, San Francisco, California. D, Solvang, California. I'll betray my ignorance on Lawrence Ferengetti history. I have Ferlinghetti? Ferengetti? Yeah, yeah Ferengetti. What did he do? Would that give it away? He was a poet. Solvang. I'm going Solvang. I'm going Solvang He was the co-owner of City Lights bookstore in San, in San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <Okay>. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, Ferengetti. Yeah, Ferengetti. Oh, Larry. I, I, yeah. Larry Ferengetti. I, I, of course, you were Larry. About something oh, else. I misspoke. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry, Joey. I'm so sorry. Oh, wait a minute. I have some more. Here we go. Merle yeah. Haggard or Buck Owens? Oh, mm. I'll go Buck Owens. Merle Haggard. All right. Martin or Gibson? Martin. Gibson. <laughs> uh, if Old Gibsons. Even, if neither Old of Gibson. those existed, which would you choose? Yamaha acoustic or Takamini acoustic? Takamini. Oh, yeah. Plastic back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bukowski or J.K. Rowling? Oh, Bukowski. I, I will happily go on the record as being um, more into Harry Potter than Charles Bukowski. All right. I can't do this, the fantasy. Ste- yeah. Steppenwolf or the zombies? Steppenwolf. Zombies. Oh, man. We're opposites here. Stand-up comedy or physical comedy? Both. Stand-up. All right. Chris Farley or John Bellucci? Oh, gosh. Farley. Farley. All right. But we're, we're younger. That's our generation. Yeah, yeah I understand. I'm, uh, I, I would agree. Um, meet and greet or locking your keys in your car. <laughs> <laughs> this is a man who knows the life. Yeah. I'll, I'll call AAA. You know, I, li- I, w- I, we n- I like a meet and greet. Okay. I like the meet. When set up correctly yeah. and efficiently. Mm-hmm. 
I like the meet and greet. All right. Well, it's Joey's going on record. On yeah, that. deep dive. Meet or greet. I like the meet and greet. You know, I didn't. I so never meet liked or greet. Answer. One or meet. The, other. the greeting is annoying formality. <laughs> the meeting is what you're after. The connection. The personal connection. <laughs> Last question. <Yeah>. Last question. <laughs> Here we go. Here on Americana <laughs> Podcast, we're looking. It should we be greet and meet. It should be greet and meet. You don't meet someone and then later greet them. You definitely say hello first and yeah. then get to know them. It would be weird the other way around. Okay, so in, uh, here at the Americana Podcast, uh, we, uh, we feel like it's almost a crime that the, an instrument as beautiful as the B3 organ is named the B3. We're looking for a new name mm. of the B3. So uh, would you have any suggestions? Oh, that's a very significant and important question. Yeah, I think and so. I, and You've come to the right place because we are very good at naming things. Okay. <laughs> as... Um. Oh, the box of soul and tears. Box oh, nice, nice, fantastic! Uh, it, it's it, it is shocking how many great answers we get here, but that one's like way up there. Is it? Yeah. All right. Yeah, fantastic, <laughs> Joey. I don't like that one. Okay. <laughs> box of soul and tears. No, that's good. That's very good. Um, yeah. I don't. Oh God. You Not can write it in later, man. I would call it. This is what it's like it being in the creative process with him, by the way. <laughs> I engage. He goes, no, 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 no. And then he goes, ah. But then watch. His wife's about to call, and then he won't call you for four years. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, e that right there explains everything. Perfect. That's all you need to know. That's right. My name is Robert Earl Keen. You've been listening to Americana Podcast of 51st State, and we are so happy that we've been talking to Joey Ryan and Kenneth Pattengale, the Milk Carton Kids. <laughs> thank you so much, gentlemen. I really appreciate it, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. time we would like to thank our host Robert Earl Keane, the team at Indo Nashville, and our guests Kenneth Pattengale and Joey Ryan of the Milk Carton Kids. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keane Productions, edited and produced by Clara Rose, with original music by Kim Warner. Until next time, let the music play. <laughs>